0: I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Welcome to this week's episode. I want to start off by apologizing that I did not have an episode out last week. Usually I am able to re-release an episode with an explanation that I'm not able to do a new episode. Last week was my parents' 50th anniversary party. Like usual, I waited till the last minute to do a lot of the last minute details. And honestly, I was going through my parents' house during the week, like I had a search warrant looking for photos and different things for the party. So that went off without a hitch. This week, I am at work during the day. I come home for about an hour, change, grab something to eat. Then I have to go over to Scout Camp from five o'clock until nine o'clock in the evening then I come home and I'm exhausted so I am recording this week and I have another episode ready for the following week because I get Saturday off and then Sunday I leave for resident camp with the scouts so needless to say I'm exhausted before next week has even started But I will have an episode this week, obviously, because you're listening to it. And I am recording for the following week. So there will be episodes. But I apologize for not getting one out last week. It's just been crazy. And sometimes I just can't get to it. I really need somebody who wants to work for free to help me. So if there's anybody out there who would like a job and doesn't want to get paid for it, I got stuff you could do. Um, also, quick reminder, we have a Patreon for $5 a month, and uh, that helps support the show. Um, make sure you check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash lurkpodcast. So for this week's episode, we are heading to West Virginia once again. I, I know we had the Haunted Trail in West Virginia, um, but we are... Again, hitting West Virginia with the story of the Greenbrier ghost. This one is a pretty interesting story. First, we're going to have a little 1800s true crime, and then we'll have the ghost account. I don't want to give too much away right in the beginning, so let's get started so you can see what I'm talking about. Back in October 1896, Elva Zona Hester, who went by her middle name Zona, Met a blacksmith named Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe. At least that was his given name, but in Greenbrier he was going by Edward Shoe, and sometimes he went by Trout Shoe. Edward Shoe was formerly of Droop Mountain in Pocahontas County and had moved to Greenbrier shortly before he and Zona had met. He was there to work for James Crookshanks at his blacksmith shop. Shoe was a large man. Some accounts called him towering, so he was tall and strong and handsome. Edward Shue liked to boast about his strength and often bullied others. He was also known for his excellent singing voice. Zona Hester was born in 1876, though some records list it as 1873. She lived near Livesey's Mill in Greenbrier County. In 1895... Zona had a child, a son, on November 29th. The son's father was listed as a George Woldridge, but the couple was not married. Some information indicates that the child died in infancy. Either way, there was no other information other than that, that the child was born November 29th, 1895, and that it was a boy, that was found in the West Virginia U.S. Birth Index. So Zona meets Edward Shue, and she's taken with his handsome appearance. They got married shortly after meeting in October of 1896. Zona's mother was not happy about the marriage. She did not like Edward Chu, and she didn't like that her daughter was basically marrying a stranger. Afterwards, the couple went to live in a small two-story house that had been the home of William G. Livesey, who was the settlement's namesake. It seemed as though the couple had a happy home life. Then, during the beginning of January, 1897, Zona fell ill for several weeks and was being treated by the local doctor, Dr. J. M. Knapp. At the time, Shue seemed to be very attentive to his wife's needs. Then, early on the morning of January 22nd, 1897, Edward Shue went to the cabin of Martha Jones to ask if her son, Anderson Jones, age 11, could go by the Shoe house to help Zona with some chores. Anderson had helped Zona Shoe before. Martha told Edward that her son could go over, but he had some jobs to finish up for Dr. Knapp first. Edward Shoe seemed to resent this, but asked that Anderson come by the house later in the afternoon. Four times Edward Shoe went to the Jones house, and each time Anderson was unable to leave. Then, around 1 p.m., Edward returned and Anderson finally agreed to go. Upon his arrival at the house, Anderson said he felt like something was off. All the doors were closed, and there was a strange feeling. When Anderson got to the steps at the front of the house, he noticed a trail of blood. He was scared, but continued to the door and knocked. No one answered, so he tried the door, and finding it unlocked, He went into the kitchen the blood trail continued to the dining room and that door too was closed anderson knocked again and with no answer went into the living room and he tripped over zona's body she was stretched out on the floor looking right up at me through wide open eyes she seemed to be laughing according to anderson i was frightened but still able to reach down and shake her she was stiff and cold. Anderson ran from the house calling to his mother that Mrs. Shue was dead. Martha Jones went to the Shue house while Anderson ran to get Edward Shue. He found Shue at the blacksmith shop with Charles Tapscott. Shue yelled and both men went running to the house. Anderson then went for the doctor. When Dr. Knapp and Anderson got to the house, shu had moved his wife's body from the floor and placed her on a bed where he held her crying for her to come back shu had not only moved the body but he had also dressed her in an old-fashioned high stiff collared dress around her neck holding the collar in place was some kind of scarf dr knapp immediately started an examination to determine if zona was in fact dead Throughout Knapp's efforts to revive Zona, Edward Shue continued to hold her head, refusing to let him examine it. The doctor finally said, It is an everlasting faint. Her heart has failed. The next morning, Zona Shue's body, accompanied by her husband and several neighbors, was taken over the mountain to Mrs. Hester's home, Zona's mother during the viewing shu would not leave his dead wife's side in the presence of others when he was not at the coffin he would not let others go near it not even her own mother he would take his place at the head of the coffin guarding it closely he also placed a folded sheet on one side of her head and some kind of garment on the other to keep her head upright on a monday zona shu was buried in the little family graveyard high on the side of the mountain In the meantime, Zona's mother, Mrs. Hester, convinced her son-in-law had something to do with her daughter's death, prayed that her daughter would come back to her and let her know what had happened. Several days after the funeral, Mrs. Hester was woken up by a noise in the small cabin. She peered through the darkness and was able to make out a form. There stood her daughter, wearing the dress she had died in. The apparition appeared ready to speak. When Mrs. Hester reached out, the vision disappeared. The next night, Mrs. Hester resumed her prayers, praying loudly that her daughter would return to explain her death. Her prayers were answered. Zona's ghost appeared on three more consecutive nights and finally told her mother what had happened. Her husband had killed her. Who isn't surprised about that? Mrs. Hester tried to trap her son-in-law, but everyone basically thought she was nuts. Can you imagine telling people you think someone is a murderer because your dead daughter told you so? I mean, if you told me that, I'd completely believe you, for the most part. Several days later, Johnson Hester, who was Zona's uncle and Mrs. Hester's brother-in-law, felt the story had some merit. He went over the mountain to the Liveseys mill to talk to edward Chew. the conversation he had with edward made johnson more suspicious then johnson hester spoke to anderson jones the 11 year old boy who found the body and he spoke to others who were present in the house when the body was found johnson hester became convinced his niece had been murdered johnson hester and mrs hester went to a conference with the prosecuting attorney john a preston preston who was a brilliant lawyer had already heard of the strange story that was spreading through the county the three talked for several hours and afterwards preston began turning the wheels of justice first preston interviewed dr knapp who admitted his finding of heart failure as cause of death might be wrong though zona had been sick her death had given him cause for suspicion Both Preston and Dr. Knapp agreed an autopsy was needed to prove foul play or to relieve Mrs. Hester's heart. Edward Shue was informed of the plans for exhumation and autopsy and he was ordered to accompany them over the mountain to his wife's grave. Martha Jones and Young Anderson were also asked to go along. Edward Shue protested against it. He kept muttering, I don't know what in the name of God they're taking her up for. They're not going to find anything. He was, of course, wrong, because why else would I be telling you about this? When they got to the graveyard, several neighbors dug up Zona Shue's body. Such a thing had never really been heard of there, so it took arguments and threats of arrest to get the coffin unearthed and raised and carried up the road to a schoolhouse. Edward Shue was taken into the schoolhouse, too, and forced to remain in the room during the autopsy. Dr. Knapp first looked for signs of poison, but found no trace. He continued to look the body over for three days and nights. Edward Shue was visibly nervous, but maintained his innocence as he sat on a box whittling. Anderson Jones was there as well. On day three, just as Dr. Knapp was about to give up, he made a startling discovery. Anderson recounted what happened. Dr. Knapp was working around Mrs. Shue's head. I could see Mr. Shue getting more nervous. His whittling was not so good. Preston and Dr. Knapp conversed for a few minutes, then Preston said, Well, Shue, we have found your wife's neck to be broken. Edward Shue's head dropped. Zona Hester Shue was buried once more, and Edward Shue was placed under arrest. Arriving at his house the next day, Edward Shue was in brighter spirits. He cooked breakfast for the sheriff's men, then announced he was ready to go to jail. He had a history, and basically Zona's mother was right not to like him or to be happy with her daughter's marriage. And ladies and gentlemen, if somebody has a strong gut feeling about somebody, pay attention to it really. Zona was actually Edward Shue's third wife. Wife number one was Allie Catlip. Edward beat her so badly one time that a group of vigilantes dragged him out of bed one winter night and dunked him in a watering hole. His wife ran to her father's home, and Allie divorced him when he was sent to the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville for a two-year sentence for stealing a horse. Then in 1894, he married Lucy Tritt, his second wife. There were some stories that said Lucy was very young, like the age of 15 when she married Shu, but the information I was able to find on Ancestry.com listed her birth year as 1871, making her 23 and of legal marrying age. Either way, her marriage to Shu was short. She died suddenly only eight months after getting married, She allegedly died either from falling or getting hit with a rock in the head. I also saw that she was possibly hit with falling bricks. Whatever the cause, she died suddenly and without any investigation. That's when Edward moved to Livesey's Mill and met Zona. So as you can see, Edward was really not a great guy. Remember, I mentioned that he liked to bully people. Edward spent several months in the county jail while Preston spent time gathering more evidence. On June 30th, the trial began. It was well attended. Preston told the jury the case was totally circumstantial and stressed that the dream testimony to be presented would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt to be authentic and said that he could prove it. Dr. Knapp was the first witness and talked about the autopsy and the broken neck cause of death. Knapp pointed out that the break was of such a nature, Mrs. Shue could not have done it in a suicide attempt. He said he made the initial heart failure diagnosis only after Shue refused to relinquish her head, requesting he not examine it. Anderson Jones testified about Edward Shue's efforts to get him to go to the house to see if Zona needed anything. Others testified that Shue was the only person seen at the house that morning and that he dressed her in the stiff necked dress with the scarf tied under her chin and how her head flopped loosely at the neck when not supported shu was also said to have failed to show the proper appreciation of the loss another witness said that shu had declared he would come back from the autopsy under arrest finally zona's mother took the stand it was the first time in american courts that there would be testimony from a ghost. Mrs. Hester talked about being unsatisfied about the cause of death, and that she prayed for Zona to return from the grave to solve the mystery. She told of the four separate visits, and how her daughter's ghost described her own death at the hands of her husband. In the Greenbrier Independent, they wrote, The following very remarkable testimony was given by Mrs. Hester on the pending trial of E.S. Shue, for the murder of his wife, her daughter, and led to the inquest and post-mortem examination, which resulted in Shue's arrest and trial. It was brought out by counsel for the accused. Question. I have heard that you had some dream or vision which led to this post-mortem examination. Answer. They saw enough theirselves without me telling them. It was no dream. She came back and told me that he was mad that she didn't have no meat cooked for supper, but she said she had plenty and said that she had butter and apple butter, apples, and named over two or three kinds of jellies, pears, and cherries, and raspberry jelly, and she says I had plenty, and she says don't you think that he was mad and just took down all my nice things and packed them away and just ruined them and she told me where I could look down back of Aunt Martha Jones's in the meadow, in a rocky place, that I could look in a cellar behind some loose plank and see. It was a lo- it was a square log house, and it was hewed up to the square, and he said for me to look right at the right-hand side of the door as you go in, and at the right-hand corner as you go in. Well, I saw the place just exactly as she told me, and I saw blood right there where she told me. And she told me something about that meat every night she came, just as she did the first night. She came four times and four nights, but the second night she told me that her neck was squeezed off at the first joint, and it was just as she had told me. Question. Now, Mrs. Hester, this sad affair was very particularly impressed upon your mind, and there was not a moment during your waking hours that you did not dwell upon it. Answer. No, sir, there is not yet either. And was this not a dream founded upon your distressed condition of mind? No, sir, it was no dream, for I was as wide awake as I ever was. Then if not a dream or dreams, what do you call it? I prayed to the Lord that she might come back and tell me what had happened, and I prayed that she might come herself and tell on him. Do you think that you actually saw her in flesh and blood? yes sir I do I told them the very dress that she was killed in and when she went to leave me she turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it and the very next time she came back to me she told me all about it the first time she came she seemed that she did not want to tell me as much about it as she did afterwards the last night she was there she told me that she did everything she could do and I am satisfied that she did do all that, too. Now, Mrs. Hester, don't you know that these visions, as you term them or describe them, were nothing more or less than four dreams founded upon your distress? No, I don't know it. The Lord sent her to me to tell it. I was the only friend that she knew she could tell, and put any confidence in. I was the nearest one to her. He gave me a ring that he pretended she wanted me to have, "'but I don't know what dead woman he might have taken it off of. "'I wanted her own ring, and he would not let me have it. "'Mrs. Hester, are you positively sure that these are not four dreams?' "'Yes, sir, it was not a dream. "'I don't dream when I am wide awake, to be sure, "'and I know I saw her right there with me. "'Are you not considerably superstitious?' "'No, sir, I'm not. "'I was never that way before, and am not now.' do you believe the scriptures yes sir i have no reason not to believe it and do you believe the scriptures contain the words of god and his son yes sir i do don't you believe it now i would like if i could to get you to say that these were four dreams and not four visions or appearances of your daughter in flesh and blood i am not going to say that for i am not going to lie THEN YOU INSIST THAT SHE ACTUALLY APPEARED IN FLESH AND BLOOD TO YOU UPON FOUR DIFFERENT OCCASIONS? YES, SIR. DID SHE NOT HAVE ANY OTHER CONVERSATIONS WITH YOU OTHER THAN UPON THE MATTER OF HER DEATH? YES. YES, SIR. SOME OTHER LITTLE THINGS, SOME THINGS I HAVE FORGOTTEN, JUST A FEW WORDS. I JUST WANTED THE PARTICULARS ABOUT HER DEATH, AND I GOT THEM. WHEN SHE CAME, DID YOU TOUCH HER? YES, SIR. I GOT UP ON MY ELBOWS AND REACHED OUT A LITTLE FURTHER as I wanted to see if people came in their coffins, and I sat up and leaned on my elbow, and there was a light in the house. It was not a lamplight. I wanted to see if there was a coffin, but there was not. She was just like she was when she left this world. It was just after I went to bed, and I wanted her to come and talk to me, and she did. This was before the inquest, and I told my neighbors. They said she was exactly as I told them she was. Had you ever seen the premises where your daughter lived? No, sir, I had not, but I found them just exactly as she told me it was, and I never laid eyes on that house until since her death. She told me this before I knew anything of the buildings at all. How long was it after this when you had these interviews with your daughter until you did see the buildings? It was a month or more after the examination. It has been a little over a month since I saw her. Then the re-cross examination. You said your daughter told you that down by the fence in a rocky place you would find some things. She said for me to look there. She didn't say I would find some things, but for me to look there. Did you? Did she tell you what to look for? No, she did not. I was so glad to see her, I forgot to ask her. Have you ever examined that place since? Yes, sir. We looked at the fence a little, but didn't find anything. Then Edward Chu was on the stand all Tuesday afternoon. He was given free rein and talked at great length was very minute and particular in describing unimportant incidents denied pretty much everything said by other witnesses said the prosecution was all spite work entered a positive denial of the charge against him vehemently protested his innocence calling god to witness admitted that he was admitted that he had served a term in the pen declared that he dearly loved his wife, and appealed to the jury to look into his face and then say if he was guilty. His testimony and manner made an unfavorable impression on the spectators. The opinion of the newspaper was that there was no middle ground for the jury to take. The verdict, inevitably and logically, must be for murder in the first degree, or for an acquittal. After only an hour and ten minutes of deliberation, The jury found Edward Shue guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in jail. Zona Shue's ghost was never seen again. As for Edward, a small mob of angry residents formed outside his jail cell. They were livid that he would serve life in prison and not be hanged. Resident George Hara learned of the mob's intent to lynch Edward and ran for the sheriff. But the mob captured Hara and the sheriff at gunpoint. The sheriff was able to defuse the mob, but Edward had been close to suffering the same fate as his wife, a broken neck. And it was a shame it didn't happen, in my opinion. Edward was sent to Moundsville, where he died eight years later. This case is still the only case in America where a ghost helped convict its murderer. If you're interested in stories of Hawn and Moundsville Penitentiary, check out episode four, where we covered that in an episode personally, I think Edward Shue was a narcissist. If you're not familiar with narcissists, look them up. Look up Narcissistic Personality Disorder. You will be amazed. You probably know one. If you do, I'm sorry. That's going to do it for this episode. Remember, you can find Lurk on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you find your other favorite podcast. If you have a minute and you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and tell your friends. And until next time, keep lurking.